You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Dr. Paul Bittinger, Vice Chair for Emergency Preparedness in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at the hospital and at Partners Healthcare. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, April 9th. Nice to get to speak with everybody. I, I uh, bring my remarks uh, sort of from the framework uh, of certainly my work at the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, but also as an emergency physician at Mass General and someone uh, responsible for the emergency planning efforts for my hospital and, and for my healthcare system. Um, I think um, just to give everybody sort of a bit of an overview uh, of, of where we think we are here in the uh, Boston and, and Northeastern region in the United States. Um, we certainly are still on the ascending uh, portion of the curve. We are seeing uh, increasing uh, numbers of patients uh, for sure. Uh, at my hospital, uh, we have about 110 uh, patients with COVID in the intensive care unit um, and uh, about 220 to 230 patients with COVID overall in the hospital right now. Uh, that means that about 40% of the patients with um, COVID that require hospitalization are in our intensive care unit. Um, we believe, uh, based on our modeling, uh, that we are between one to two weeks uh, from potentially the peak uh, of hospitalizations, uh, both for critical illness and general illness. We believe that uh, roughly in a week, uh, give or take obviously several days, um, that, that we think we may hit the peak of hospitalizations and the peak of critical care illness uh, is delayed by a few days beyond that. Uh, just because uh, patients uh, typically take a couple of days to get to the critical level of illness in, in their course uh, of, of being infected with COVID. Um, we had uh, been planning uh, a lot based on our modeling. Uh, we have healthcare systems engineers that model with us. We've been looking at data from uh, China, from South Korea, from many places in the world, and I would say notably from Italy, uh, where we've had access to a great deal of data and we've been comparing our experience at Mass General and at Partners Healthcare uh, with uh, both the northern Italian and central Italian experience um, to try and see uh, what uh, what might be ahead of us. Um, I'm very pleased to say that for now about a week or so um, our data no longer uh, looks uh, as much uh, like it did as a northern Italian situation. So Northern Italy, as everyone is, is well aware, uh, was uh, very severely affected uh, by COVID, still is severely affected by COVID. Um, and there was a period uh, where our hospital admissions data looked very much like Northern Italy. Um, roughly about a week to two after the uh, implementation and then strengthening of uh, social distancing, uh, physical distancing, uh, instructions from the governor, from multiple mayors here in Eastern Massachusetts, we now have seen that our curve of arriving patients, both with general illness and critical illness, has decreased. Um, and we are very pleased to say that, that it looks like the peak numbers for critical illness are less uh, than, than they had uh, previously been. Mass General Hospital is a large hospital. We have about 1,000 beds uh, overall. Uh, we have about 150 critical care beds. Uh, on an average, uh, on a daily basis, and, and on average, uh, 47 uh, patients within those 150 ICU beds are typically uh, on ventilators. So uh, as you can tell uh, by the fact that currently we have more than 100 COVID patients on ventilators right now, uh, we have more than double the number of patients on ventilators currently with COVID uh, 
um, than we would normally have in total on uh, patients on ventilators uh, in a normal situation. We have created three different uh, intensive care unit spaces outside of our normal existing intensive care units uh, in order to be able to respond to the needs uh, of, of our patients. Um, and we have the capacity here to surge up to 300 critical care beds um, if needed. So again, normally we have 150, we can surge up to 300. We expect that we will probably need to take care of, them more, than two, of no, more than 200 patients with ICU needs with critical care illness, uh, including you know, many of our existing ICU spaces, uh, but newly created ICU spaces in general medical wards, uh, as well as in our post-anesthesia care unit, our recovery area, um, in order to meet the demands of the surge. We uh, are using all of the traditional ventilators we have uh, and are, uh, will likely need to incorporate transport ventilators as well as anesthesia machines uh, in order to provide ventilation for uh, all the patients at the peak of illness. Um, we are already using some anesthesia machines now as ventilators uh, in our uh, post-anesthesia care unit, our recovery area. We are cautiously optimistic uh, that uh, with the numbers we think we are anticipating that we will have enough ventilators uh, and we will have enough intensive care uh, unit spaces. Um, but uh, we certainly uh, um, uh, are um, anticipating, we have been working to uh, talk about how we would institute crisis standards of care if they were needed. Um, so as most all of you know, the governor here in Massachusetts uh, just released uh, a crisis standards of care guidance uh, for hospitals in Massachusetts. And I would say um, there were times when we were more on the Northern Italian situation that we thought um, that, that uh, this would be a, a uh, impending need. We're very grateful that right now uh, the numbers uh, do not suggest uh, that, that we uh, will run out of resources in the way that the previous modeling had suggested. But we nonetheless believe that it's extremely important as part of responsible emergency planning to anticipate how we would ethically, fairly, transparently, scientifically make decisions across lots of different hospitals, including our own hospitals, uh, if we ever did not have sufficient numbers of ventilators or ICU spaces or, or others. Um, and so uh, we are very grateful uh, for the leadership of, of the state in this regard. Um, and uh, for anyone who's uh, read those uh, crisis standards of care documents, uh, they, it's not simply uh, a, a, a um, list of steps that one should take to uh, determine whether or not uh, someone is able to be triaged to receive uh, critical care resources, but it actually requires uh, systems uh, and, and structures, including triage officers and triage committees within a hospital. And so we have within our hospital um, uh, done work to make sure we communicate with people who would be affected uh, if there were to be crisis standards of care. But again, I, I really would emphasize uh, that right now that's not what we think we uh, need to do. Um, and everything about our response uh, over the last three months has been focused on maximizing resource availability uh, so that we can take care of all the patients uh, who needs us, who need us, excuse me. So um, I think I will probably stop there and see what questions you all have, um, but hopefully that gives a sense uh, for, for where we are. We, we have um, uh, quite a, an extraordinary, um, uh, we have, uh, done an extraordinary amount of work. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have done uh, uh, yeoman's work to 
open up new ICU spaces, to move ventilators around, to come up with contingency plans, to uh, work exceptionally hard. Um, and I'm, I'm indebted to all of them for the, the work that they've done uh, to be able to, um, to be able to help us be in the position we're in. Uh, and uh, though we have many, many, many weeks uh, still of hard work ahead of us, um, we, uh, we are certainly ready to, to continue to provide care throughout this outbreak. All right, um, looks like the first question. Hi, um, thanks very much for doing this. Um, I have a question more focused on, um, I guess, sort of the research side as opposed to the clinical care at MGH, but like, so as the effects of the outbreak start being seen in smaller towns and in rural communities, um, what are some of the things that you look to, I guess, to uh, judge how prepared these smaller communities are? You know, what are some of the factors that will leave some may be um, better prepared than others? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think there are both systemic factors and medical factors uh, that go into this. I, I think systemic factors are how well uh, communities can come together to aggregate resources and, uh, and monitor and manage their capacity. Um, just recently, we have uh, stood up a citywide capacity management group uh, among the Boston hospitals and obviously, you know, in the Boston area, we're obviously fortunate to have uh, a large amount of, of medical resources, but still um, just the way patients present, uh, one, hospital, one hospital can become more severely overloaded with critical illness than another one or, or inpatients, et cetera. Um, and so uh, we've really come together to, on a daily basis, share capacity data and make sure that patients uh, arrive um, or can be transferred to, to uh, places with sufficient capacity to take care of them. I think as uh, more rural areas get hit, um, clearly they will need to do the same. Uh, they face different challenges, certainly with long transport times uh, for ambulances, uh, as well as, uh, uh, generally speaking, fewer ambulance resources to move patients around. Um, but they need to create communities uh, where they're able to identify where there is still hospital capacity and create structures to, to move patients around in ways that, that they probably don't uh, on, a, on a normal basis. And then on the clinical side, uh, you know, it, part of what I think is helping us so much is that um, from Italy, from China, from, from lots of places in the world, that the data about how to best take care of patients with this extraordinary illness um, uh, is, is moving fast. Um, COVID causes a lot of unusual complications that, that we haven't really seen before in different infectious diseases, um, such as um, uh, a, a uh, significantly pro-thrombotic state. That means people clot uh, much more easily. Uh, and there have been a lot of complications with people making clots. So the uh, data on how best to manage anticoagulation um, is, is being shared in real time. Um, there's a fair amount of kidney damage uh, that is occurring, um, sometimes related to the fluid management of the patient, sometimes related to the disease. And so again, we're trying to share protocols on how best to manage the fluid status as well as the respiratory status of these patients. And so um, our hospital uh, is sharing uh, its resources quite uh, quickly and quite broadly with others uh, based on the lessons that, that we are able to learn from those who are gracious enough to share their lessons with us. Uh, and so certainly as you get into more rural communities where their intensive care unit expertise and staffing uh, is, uh, is more thinly stretched, uh, hopefully they can build on uh, the resources from either those who've already experienced the outbreak earlier or, or larger institutions that can share resources. Last thing I'll say is, is we're certainly all 
trying to pursue telemedical strategies uh, so that again, in these more rural areas where they may not have quite the same access to intensivists, uh, working with some of the national societies, um, such as the Society for Critical Care Medicine or American Thoracic Society or others, uh, to try and create telemedical strategies uh, to, to especially give them critical care expertise uh, is an important need uh, that I think uh, several people are trying to work on. All right, um, next question. Thank you, and, and, and thank you, Paul, for doing this. Um, Governor Baker repeatedly refers to a surge, which is a little bit confusing. I mean, are we in the surge now as far as you see it, or is that still something that's coming? And assuming that it's kind of a typical bell curve, how long do you expect the, the plateau to, to last? And, and just one other piece of this question, um, can you at all quantify if we had been like Northern Italy, what would be the totals we would have been seeing compared to what you expect us to see now? Thank you. Yeah, so thanks, Carrie. I, I think a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, in my world, surge in some sense uh, is, is a term of art in the emergency management world, and so we're absolutely in the surge. Uh, it's a way we aggregate the S's of surge planning, so staff, stuff, space, and the system. Uh, because we need personnel, we need resources, we need uh, either headwalls or hospital care spaces, um, and, uh, and we need a system that brings it all together. So, so anything that increases or, or changes the way we uh, deliver medical care to respond to the disaster is, is part of surge planning. Uh, we're definitely in the surge, uh, and uh, you know, again, we estimate based on at least our own internal modeling, we're a week or two away from the peak, and you know, if, if um, you consider that maybe probably first, second week of March is when we started up the surge. It is a bit of a bell curve. Uh, the tail is, is a little long, so it's not a perfectly distributed bell curve because uh, unfortunately there are prolonged hospitalizations, especially in the ICU for this. Uh, but but you know, it, it's fair to assume that you know, ramping down on the other side of the curve will be six to eight plus weeks. Uh, what none of us knows uh, is uh, whether, when there will be a second wave, you know, how uh, the need to um, reopen society and to, uh, to, to take care of some of the other important economic considerations that are, that are certainly uh, very relevant uh, will affect uh, what continuing COVID uh, infection may look like. So lots of people are working really hard on that. I, I think you know, the plateau is probably a week to two um, uh, of, of staying somewhat level, uh, but again, probably we all want it to go away as fast as it can possibly go away, but but I think six to eight weeks is realistic. Thank you. And the Italy question? I'm so sorry. So the Italy question, um, you know, again, um, all of these are models. They're not predictions or estimates, but the model had suggested uh, that, uh, say, for Mass General is one example, we, we really may have needed every one of those 300 critical care beds uh, that we can possibly create or just a little bit uh, above. I would say looking across partners healthcare system, the modeling uh, suggested a full saturation of everything we could possibly do, uh, but, but thankfully didn't exceed it by say two or three times. Um, obviously that's different for every hospital, different in every region, but I, I think it, it made us nervous, uh, but, uh, but uh, cautiously uh, thinking that, that you know, with maximum resource mobilization, we would be able to, to respond to the peak. I'm extremely grateful that uh, we, we, we don't think we're going to hit that peak. Next question. Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks, thanks for doing this. Um, I 
wanted to shift the focus to uh, healthcare workers, and I wonder if you could talk about, um, first of all, how, how the uh, disease has been impacting your staff, um, and second, um, what, what is life like in the ER these days? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the impact on staff is it, it obviously varied. Uh, I think lots of people process uh, this and experience this differently. Um, I think everybody's tired. Uh, I think everybody is, is at least a little anxious, though maybe, maybe somewhat less so. Um, I think uh, the longer we go in this uh, without seeing uh, a major increase in rates of healthcare worker uh, infection, the more reassurance we have that our personal protective equipment is safe, that our policies, our procedures are safe. Um, you know, we look at this in my health sister, healthcare system every single day. We look at it extremely closely. Uh, and we continue, uh, thankfully, to, to not see any signals that would suggest uh, that there are excess healthcare worker infections uh, due to problems with PPE. Um, I think there, there's been an extraordinary outpouring of support. Uh, you go up to any one of our units, they have signs written in crayon by kids that have been sent into the hospital. Um, they have uh, notes, cards of well wishes. It's, it's really extraordinary. And um, I, I hope this doesn't sound a, a little too saccharine, but, but as much as I love walking around this hospital normally, walking around right now, you can, you can really feel the mission. It's, it's just extraordinary to see the nurses, the, the, the clinical staff, the, the physicians, it, especially in these floors that have been turned into ICU, uh, ICU spaces. Um, you know, you might think that, that it, um, it might seem uh, like people are overwhelmed or scared, and it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's extraordinary that, that they feel almost, I think a lot of people do feel proud to be able to take care of patients uh, during this time. Um, again, there's still a lot of weeks ahead of us, and I think people are tired. We're worried about uh, how, how fatigued and how, um, uh, how stressed people uh, can be, but, but we're doing our very best to rotate staff and to try and give them resources and ways to, to step back and, and de-stress whenever possible. Do you have numbers of people who are out ill? And, and I know that MGH has uh, more stringent, you know, any, any symptoms whatsoever, stay home policies. And, and has that sort of lent to an increase in the demands on those who do go to work? Uh, it does, uh, no question. So, so we absolutely, of course, for the, you know, safety of the workplace, uh, insists that everyone uh, with any symptom uh, go home uh, and contact occupational health. We, in fact, have created an app uh, so that everyone across Partners Healthcare coming into work every single day has to fill out a, a brief attestation that they don't have fever, sore throat, cough, muscle aches, fatigue, um, and they have to do that every single day, and it, it shows a little picture on their smartphone or they fill out a form if they don't have a smartphone. Um, so that we have a record of it. Um, and, and it's just to enforce uh, how important it is that people have symptoms, that they tell us if they have symptoms. Uh, and then of course we test uh, people if they have symptoms. More than 90% uh, of our workforce uh, that report symptoms uh, do not have uh, COVID. Uh, and so thankfully uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small number and it's actually a smaller fraction of our workforce uh, that tests positive than the overall uh, number of people who test positive in, in the Commonwealth which is one of those uh, reassuring data points that we, that we monitor so closely. Um, but it does create staffing challenges. As soon as someone is sent home, of course, they can't work uh, for the day. And it usually takes us at least 24 to uh, 48 hours to get the testing results back. And that means that there's a hole in the schedule. And so uh, across the entire hospital, staffing has been a, 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 a very significant challenge. 
Um, we've been redeploying staff, moving a lot of staff around um, to be able to meet the needs. Um, but but the staff furloughs are, are really sort of unavoidable, and uh, and um, again, certainly nothing we could change in order to uh, to bring people back if we're, if we're going to threaten safety. Very good. Thank you very much. Next question. Uh, good morning. Uh, so I just wanted to ask about the decontamination system that is going to be uh, up and running soon in Somerville. Uh, what, when do you know when it will be actually starting and how important is it that the system, um, how important is it to have the system for the frontline workers and medical personnel so that you don't have a repeatable zones where it, the personnel are reusing these masks that are contaminated because they just have the extreme shortage. Yeah, so, so obviously the Battelle system uh, that is being rolled out is, is just extremely helpful to us uh, to be able to help preserve our, our supply of personal protective equipment. Um, we are doing test runs now. Uh, we hope that uh, over the weekend, early into next week, we're gonna be able to uh, start decontaminating uh, N95s at an increasing rate. Um, obviously we need to make sure that all of our indicators, all of our tests prove that the, uh, that the process is working exactly as it's supposed to. And, uh, that the uh, what we call indicators, the bacterial and viral indicators, others uh, are, are all effective. Um, it, it absolutely helps preserve our, our PPE, our personal protective equipment supply. Um, I would say with respect to the extended use or, or uh, reuse policies, uh, what we've been doing uh, conforms exactly to what CDC recommends. Um, and one important uh, distinction uh, that, that just to make, make clear, I don't know whether it was uh, something in your comment or not, but um, we do not permit uh, reuse of any uh, N95s or personal protective equipment used in, in an aerosol generating procedure for a COVID patient. So anywhere where we uh, think there's been COVID contamination of the PPE is not allowed to be reused um, because uh, that, again, wouldn't actually meet CDC criteria that, that, that we don't believe is safe. Us being in the surge right now, how important is it to have this kind of uh, system available to hospitals like MGH? It, it's extremely important. Uh, I think we would not uh, likely be able to sustain our current N95 usage uh, and strategy without it. Uh, you know, we, we have absolutely uh, um, been doing everything we can to acquire new product, uh, to purchase uh, N95s where, wherever we can find them. Uh, but of course, everyone across the country and, and really around the world is trying to do the same thing. So this gives us a boost uh, of maybe, we, it, we won't know until we're up and running for sure, but say 20 to 30% uh, uh, boost in our N95 uh, options. Um, and so as we get it up and running uh, across partners, it's certainly our hope to uh, allow uh, to, to work with other hospitals uh, to give them the same resource as much as possible. Uh, you know, this is important for the whole healthcare community. And so we hope uh, that we'll get up to 80,000 uh, respirators per day that can be decontaminated. Uh, that's much bigger than the need we have uh, across partners. And so again, we want to share that. Uh, we want to work with others uh, in the healthcare space uh, so that you know, we can support all healthcare worker safety as much as we possibly can. So right now it's all for the uh, partners, healthcare network hospitals? It, we're, uh, we're going through a phased um, uh, start right now. So right now it's actually just a small subset of N95s, not even just all across partners. Just as, as I say, we have to make sure it works. We have to make sure uh, that um, that the throughput is effective, uh, but the hope is to expand. Uh, and, and again, we'll be communicating with partners in the Mass Hospital Association, uh, with others with uh, state government to make sure that um, 
again, we can we can do the very most we can with the capability for that. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate it. So I, I, I don't wonder if you've, I know this is not really your area of expertise, but have you heard anything about the possible use of the TB vaccine and whether you think that's viable and also whether a vaccine, what kind of impact a vaccine in general would have on the burden on hospitals in treating COVID-19? So, so I can't comment on the TB vaccine specifically. Uh, on on a vaccine in general, uh, obviously, you know, vaccines uh, are game changers in terms of uh, disease transmission. Uh, you know, we've uh, seen this in so many areas uh, with diseases that went away uh, for the most part when uh, we had effective vaccines, uh, and unfortunately, diseases that have resurged uh, when we've had differences in how much vaccines are used. Um, I, I think it's it's just hard to predict right now. Uh, whether and when uh, there might be an effective vaccine. Uh, but, but if there is one, uh, and if it can be produced to a large scale, and then, uh, of course, administered on a, on a large scale, um, that, that would just be, be absolutely enormous. Um, we're, all, we're all hopeful that, that we can find a safe and effective vaccine as quickly as possible. And then when we do, that we can manufacture it and, and distribute it as quickly as possible on, at a very large scale. Thank you. Okay, it looks like another question. Uh, hi, Paul. Just, just a quick follow-up. Um, uh, you tallied the number of ventilators MGH has at its disposal. Um, are any of the, have any of those been sent? You know, we hear about the federal government sending stuff here or there. And, uh, have any been sent or borrowed or are these things that were uh, within your stock or that were acquired by MGH, uh, you know, through its regular purchasing uh, arrangements? Yeah, so, so for Mass General, all of the ventilators that we have are ventilators uh, that, that we either owned or, or ordered uh, um, as we were heading into this outbreak. Uh, across Partners Healthcare, we tried to purchase uh, more than 200 ventilators, uh, and we were able to acquire, I think, about 60 of those. Uh, and basically, right now, we, we don't believe we're going to be receiving any, any additional ventilators from our orders anytime soon. Uh, we have not received any uh, ventilators from the Strategic National Stockpile, but uh, other hospitals within Partners Healthcare have received uh, ventilators um, as, as they have uh, surged with COVID patients. Thank you. It's a little bit more about the citywide capacity management group. How is that working? And are hospitals actually going across systems and giving stuff that other hospitals need? And who's running it? Um, so it is a uh, voluntary association of all of the hospitals in the Boston area, um, and it is being co-led by uh, critical care physicians uh, from uh, Mass General and from and partners and from uh, Beth Israel. Uh, and uh, again, all of the hospitals are, are welcome to participate, and they voluntarily share data on their ICU capacity, on the numbers of patients uh, that are hospitalized. Um, and they talk about where there are areas where there are, there's opportunity for more uh, patient flow. Um, so again, the uh, different hospitals in the area have different numbers of either ICU uh, uh, patients or, or ICU capacity. Um, and for the most part, uh, really the group tries to help direct the patients uh, or help identify areas where patients can go uh, as opposed to move staff or, or other physical resources around. And so. Uh, there have been a couple of cases so far where differing hospitals have hit capacity uh, and, have, and have been unable to care for additional critical care patients, um, and hospitals have stepped up and volunteered to, uh, to accept either transfers or emergency department admissions. 
Um, and so it's, it's really a, a fantastic way that um, people are, are not trying to uh, um, follow some of the normal transfer guidelines, but really make sure that uh, the transfer patterns, I should say, um, but make sure that you know patients end up in the right critical care space uh, whenever possible. So um, it, it's an it's a really nice example of everyone sort of dropping their their typical affiliations uh, and just making sure that we make capacity for the patients who need need hospitalization. Yeah, that's that's lovely. We heard that BMC had to stop accepting critical care patients this weekend. Who who else has had to do that? Uh, so, so I think it's it's about transfer of, of where patients are, are going and kind of re-leveling. So, so uh, Boston Medical Center has transferred some patients. Uh, we're actually, uh, I think, transferring some patients down from the North Shore uh, today. Uh, I think it's going to be different on on different days. Thank you. All right. And if looks like there may not be any more questions. Okay. If that's the case, um, thank you, Dr. Bittinger. Um, do you have any other final words you would like to say? Um, no, I, I, well, I, I'll say them anyway. Um, I, you know, this has been an extraordinary time in, in medicine. I think every hospital has uh, done things they likely thought they never would have to do uh, in order to make ICU space, ED space, hospital space available and uh, to uh, have systems in place to make sure they protect their workers while they're delivering this care. And, um, there's a lot of um, a lot of good in in the horrible uh, impact that this uh, outbreak is having uh, on society overall. Just to see what the healthcare community has been capable of, and um, I'm really glad that across the city, across the state, hospitals have come together to 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 take actions like the ones we've been talking about today. So, um, hopefully, again, uh, we won't see the worst of this, and I'm I'm thrilled that. What's been done so far uh, really has, has made sure that we can care for everyone who's become ill with COVID in Massachusetts. This concludes the April 9th press conference.